Thank you, Jeff. Hi, everyone. I get to read the Bible today, which is a joy. Uh, Acts chapter 6, 1 to 7. It's on the screen. Follow along in your Bible too. Uh, and let me read this before Meredith comes up for all ages. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm looking forward to a few mince pies afterwards. like mince pies a lot, you know, so hope you are too. If you've got your Bibles on your devices or wherever you have them, keep them over in Acts chapter 6. And, of course, if you go to the Hub, you'll see the outline uh, for the talk uh, there today. Now, as was said earlier by Meredith and, and Jeff and others, Um, So far in our coverage of the first few chapters of Acts, we have been uh, following in particular one theme, uh, one that I hope now you are very familiar with. It is the theme that nothing can stop the mission of the risen Lord Jesus, basically to build his church. The Lord Jesus himself uh, set his mission out right back in Acts chapter 1 in verse 8 when he said to the apostles, Um, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now once the Holy Spirit is given in Acts chapter 2, then Luke records various attempts um, to indeed stop that mission of Jesus and how these attempts overcome. And behind all these attempts um, is the work of Satan, the devil. Now, Satan is not exactly mentioned much. Uh, mainly he's working through the people through such uh, in these early days as uh, the traditional Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But last week when Luke uh, took us through the incident with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, the Apostle Peter referred to Satan as the one behind the, their attempted uh, deception. In chapter 5, verse 3, Peter says to Ananias, um, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you have received for the land? So all these attempts really to stop the mission of Jesus should be seen as what the Apostle later referred, Apostle Paul later referred to in Ephesians chapter 6 as the devil's schemes. 
And so far, we've seen several attempts to stop the mission of Jesus. First, through increasing persecution by the Jewish leaders, uh, starting off with a warning to the apostles and then jail and then flogging. Um, And after our passage today, of course, we've already looked at this one, we see even the stoning of Stephen and his death. All of these failed. And as the history of the church has shown, actually, persecution often, um, heavy persecution often only has the effect of strengthening God's people and actually uh, propelling its growth. Then going back again to Ananias and Sapphira, we saw last week Satan's attempt to infiltrate the church with fake disciples who lied about how much money they were giving for the needs of the church, almost certainly motivated by self-interest and pride. We might refer to this as a move from outside persecution to insider corruption. Again, the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter that this was the case and again, Satan's scheme therefore failed. Now, you might not think that our passage today is in the same category as the other two. After all, it's just a bit of a dispute about the distribution of food, which was uh, quickly solved in one way or another and then everybody moved on. But I want you to notice the words that come uh, just before and after the dispute. So just before, at the end, at the end of chapter 5, we read these words. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And then in verse 7 of chapter 6, um, directly afterwards, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. In other words, I think we should take the problem that we see here in chapter 6 between verses 1 and 6 as another problem that threatened to curtail the mission of Jesus to build his church through the preaching of the gospel. It was another example of the devil's schemes and in some ways one might regard it as the most cunning of all. So we've seen that the mission of the risen Jesus cannot be stopped by the threat of persecution, it cannot be stopped by the threat of corruption, but what about the threat of disunity and distraction? As the saying goes, there's more than one way to skin a cat. So what we see here is not a threat of the mission of Jesus from the outside, but from the inside. A dispute among the genuine believers themselves, which can be far more subtle and, may I suggest, dangerous. Outside pressures may be real, but in some ways they are also more easily recognisable. You can see them quickly. But the consequences for the mission of Jesus from problems within the church are not as easy to see. In this passage it comes in two ways. First, there is a complaint about the distribution of food to the poor widows. In verse 1, In those days when the numbers of disciples were increasing, 
The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, of course, God's care and concern uh, for widows is well documented in the Old Testament and often seen as a testimony to the faithfulness of the people of Israel, how they treated them. So the care of widows was an important ministry also in the first century. Widows were among the most vulnerable in society, particularly if they had no relatives to support them, um, as may have been the case here, particularly with the widows in the um, Hellenistic group, which I'll explain in a moment. So this was not just a trifling problem. Uh, We don't have much other information at all about these two groups, Hellenistic Jews and uh, Hebraic Jews. At this stage, both groups are living in Jerusalem and it seems that they're at least separated by language, which is where the, the names may come from. Hebraic Jews was probably a way of referring to Jews who still spoke their native language, at this time Aramaic, um, and Hellenistic Jews would refer to those Jews whose native language was Greek, which of course was the major language across the whole Roman Empire at the time. So this probably, Hellenistic Jews, indicates uh, a group of Jews who had been scattered through their history out of Palestine, out of Jerusalem, uh, as a result of various incidences in the history, not the least being God's own exile of them um, way back in the Old Testament and scattering. But it seems like many of them had now moved back um, to Jerusalem but no longer spoke their native language. Mostly this difference probably meant that there were also differences in culture between them, in the way they practised their Judaism, we're not sure. Some commentators think the Hebraic Jews looked down on the Hellenistic Jews or that maybe their pre-Christian prejudices began to emerge resulting in the neglect of widows on the Hellenistic side. But there's little to indicate that really. I think more likely than is the problem that this was simply a simple factor of growth in the early church. Notice that verse 1 says the number of disciples were increasing. It may be that such growth uh, simply meant that a certain group of people got left out. But because those left out comprised a specific ethnic group of Jews, there was great potential here for division and disunity. Now friends, we're coming up to a state election early next year and if you've been reading up on that at all or in the papers you'll see the Liberal part of the problem with the Liberal government at the moment is that they have all sorts of unity problems amongst them in terms of defectors and doing all sorts of things trying to keep them together. And one of the mantras of any sort of politics, federal or state, is that disunity is death to a political party. It's been shown to be the case over and over again. But I think this is no different from the church as well, especially when it comes to different ethnic groups. The book of Revelation sets out a new heaven and a new earth where God's people will come from every nation and tribe on earth. People from every nation and tribe on earth. And the gospel of Jesus is that through 
the death and resurrection, his death and resurrection, all divisions based on human divisions, based on race, culture or geography have been broken down. Everyone who is a disciple of Jesus is to be treated as a brother or a sister, cared for and loved as the need arises. A church where different races and cultures mix is actually a testament to the gospel and a catalyst, I think, to the worldwide mission of Jesus. On the other hand, any sense within God's people or of, of a sort of us and them mentality or of treating one group preferentially to another is one of the surest ways to hobble the church's ability to spread God's word and reach out to others with his love and forgiveness. And I've got to say now, if I'm being honest, then this is not always easy to do. To speak in care for those who may be culturally and racially different from your own background. But it's incredibly important that we work at doing so. Now there's also a second vehicle here that Satan uses to try and stop the progress of the mission of Jesus. We see this in verse 2. It's the temptation to distraction. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. They had a concern, you see, about the neglecting of the preaching of the word. It seems that the oversight of the distribution of food to widows was still administered at this stage by the apostles themselves. They were the ones who were still, however they did it, taking responsibility um, for that. But with the growth of the number of disciples and presumably the widows as a component of that, it was taking more and more of the apostles' time to administer this distribution to provide for them. So much so that they were concerned about neglecting the prime task that God had given them, the ministry of the word of God. Which was another way, of course, of referring to the preaching of the gospel. Now, I don't think we ought to regard the reference here to waiting on tables as a comparison of importance or priority. It may look that way in terms of the language that's chosen. But in fact, the text seems to indicate just the opposite, though it may not be obvious from the English translation. One of the interesting things you don't see in the English here is that uh, Luke uses the same word the word ministry, to refer to both the distribution of food and to the word of God. So daily distribution in verse 1 is literally daily ministry. And of course ministry is used in the word of God in verse 2. So both are designated here as Christian ministries, along one alongside the other. So I don't think we have a comparison here of the relative importance of one ministry over another. It's rather simply to say that the apostles had been given a particular task by Jesus. 
a prime task, noted as we saw in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, to be his witnesses. And the growing practical need of the care of the widows was in danger of distracting the apostles from their prime Jesus-given commission to be witnesses. Both ministries, all ministries, are important. The problem here is not priority or importance, but distraction. Distraction. A subtle but real way in which Satan seeks to stop the mission of Jesus by undermining, you see, the vital ministry of preaching and teaching the word of God. So in these few verses in chapter 6, we find one of Satan's most clever ways, I think, of seeking to stop the mission of Jesus, disunity and distraction. And if you know anything about the history of the church, the institutionalised church particularly, you might be able to point to plenty of examples through which that has happened. Well, what did the disciples do? What was the solution? It was, of course, the appointment of seven men um, in which we see in verses 3 to 6. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now I think there's several things we ought to note here regarding this solution and particularly too to its relevance to ourselves by way of application today. You see, this wasn't just a case of looking for, around for anybody who could uh, do the job. Um, what we need to look first to is notice the qualifications of this. They were p- to be men known to be full uh, of the spirit and wisdom. It was not just anybody who could do the job, had the time, volunteered, The care of widows and the even-handed distribution of food needed people of spiritual character. Spiritual men appointed to an important ministry. And that is because the credibility of the proclamation of the gospel rests very much on the behaviour and character of God's people. The credibility of the proclamation of the gospel rests very much on the behaviour and character of God's people. One of the greatest mistakes I think the churches can make is to fill rosters and jobs and things like that with those who are capable, let's say, of doing the job, they might have wisdom, without regard to their Christian life and character. Second, Notice that the choice of the seven of these men were given over to the whole church, not just the apostles. It wasn't the apostles who chose them. They brought all the church together. Even though, of course, in the end, their official appointment, the apostles laid hands on them when they were chosen and set them for the task, 
but this was given to the whole church. I think this almost certainly was a masterstroke in maintaining unity among the believers. And so, no wonder we're told in verse 5 that this proposal pleased everyone. They were all involved. Uh, The potential for disunity and division was overcome because the whole group of believers owned the decision. And one of the interesting things about the people chosen here is that the seven men have Greek names. Now that doesn't necessarily mean they were all from the group of Hellenistic Jews because Jews could have many names. In fact, often they had three. They had a Hebrew name, they had a Greek name and they had a Roman name. So it doesn't necessarily mean that. But I think there are other indications that show that was probably the case because we're told at least Nicholas in verse 4-5 was a convert to Judaism and so therefore he certainly wasn't a brave Jew and we're told and Stephen if we were to look a couple of verses on in verse 9 it looks like was from the synagogue of freedmen who came from outside Jerusalem too so at least those two it seems uh, came from the group of Hellenistic Jews and probably some of the others as well Um, So it's very likely that these men came from the group of people who um, felt neglected, out of whom that complaint came. A wise move, I think, in order to maintain unity. Now, our circumstances, of course, may not be the same, but the concern for unity, brothers and sisters, should be this unity and division have littered the history of the church and often undermined its ability to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. We should always seek to nip in the bud quickly any kind of disunity that may arise amongst us in a similar way. And third, This um, delegation of responsibility for the care of the widows allowed the apostles to give themselves to the commission they'd received from Jesus, to be his witnesses at this stage still in Jerusalem, to preach the word of God to outsiders and teach believers what it meant to live as disciples of Jesus. So we also need to be sure that those amongst us who are called to pastoral work, primarily in our case Luke of course, are encouraged to devote themselves to preaching and teaching God's word. Not to get distracted by a whole lot of admin or other stuff, but to preach and teach God's word both publicly when we gather together and privately in conversation with regard to our own spiritual journey. It's not, of course, that a pastor is never engaged in other practical work. Just read Paul's letters for the many things he did he says, when he came amongst the people of God. It's simply to say that pastors are called to preach and teach God's word for the overall growth and health of God's people. It's easy to to become involved in perfectly good ministries to the detriment of the one of the pastor's training and calling to fulfil. 
So as we come to the end of the passage, we see the immediate dealing with the complaint uh, and the wise and sensitive handling it received. We see, of course, the result in verses 6 and 7. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The clever and subtle schemes of Satan to foster division, disunity and distraction were overcome. Unity was maintained. They all agreed. The genuine needs of people were met. Everyone was distributed with food as needed. And so the word of God spread. Verse 7 is really a watershed verse, one of the first of the, what I'd call the watershed verses in, in Acts. It's a, a number of verses that are summary verses of all the activity that's gone before and they're summary verses of how the word of God, how the mission of Jesus spreads uh, and grows. This verse 7 really refers to the entire six chapters that we've been looking at. Um, and verse 7 shows us what the spread of the word of God means. As the apostles preached and taught, what does it say? Disciples are rapidly added. People respond and become believers. You see, spread does not refer to geography. We're still in Jerusalem at this stage. We'll get out of there after Stephen, but still in Jerusalem these days. Apostles, the apostles preaching, it doesn't refer to the apostles preaching all over the place. The spread refers to its effect. It's a fact that people were responding to the gospel and becoming believers. And secondly, we're told that many priests became obedient to the faith. You see, disciples are more than people who just respond to the gospel. They are people who learn and grow into obedience of lifestyle that comes from a faith and trust in Jesus. That's what it means to be obedient to the faith. Not just responding, but growing and it's a continual, of course, journey. I hope, brothers and sisters, that this is your life's goal also. The obedience of faith. A lifelong journey to become more and more like Jesus each day. Well, one final remark as I conclude about something I've not yet mentioned yet. Um, In verse 2, the apostolic ministry is referred to as the ministry of the word of God. But notice that in verse 4, the apostles add prayer to that ministry, ministry of prayer and the word of God. Why do they do that? Well, yes, it is because Prayer for God's people is indeed part of pastoral ministry because you want to see people grow and the church grow and God's mission grow. And so prayer is... But I think there's another reason, very significant reason why prayer is mentioned here. I think prayer is mentioned here because it indicates the true source. The true source for the spread of the word of God. The apostles had been given this vital ministry 
of proclaiming the word, but they knew that the work of God's spirit was the source of its success. Just as Paul was to say later to the Corinthians, referring to himself and Apollos, one person plants, another person waters, but it is always God who makes things grow. So for us brothers and sisters, the word of God spreads because we play our part ministering with the gifts God has given each one but it is always God who makes it grow. So let's ask God to do that now, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you indeed for these early chapters of Acts that we've been looking at. Uh, We thank you that the mission of Jesus, the risen Jesus, can never be stopped. That the work of your spirit is always moving ahead. And we thank you that this happens, that you have chosen to do this through our efforts in ministering according to gift, ability and character. We pray, Lord, that as we look at the temptations to disunity and distraction today, that you may protect us from these, that you may help us always um, uh, to deal with issues that arise within us so that we always may be unified together in our love for you and our love to see the Lord Jesus and his gospel proclaimed. And we pray, Lord, that um, you may help us and our leaders too not to be distracted from their primary calling to preach your word and that we may help them uh, to do so and encourage them to do so also. Lord, we thank you so much that we are your people and we pray that in each of our spiritual journeys you may help us to be obedient to the faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.